part one of our discussion with Rory Sutherland, we talked a lot about how efficiency is often used as a proxy for effectiveness and how when we optimize for efficiency in a system, that can have pretty disastrous effects. Well, in this episode, we're going to change tack slightly and we're going to talk about rational decision making. Because the reality is we all love to believe that we make really good, sound, rational decisions. And the interesting thing is that economists believe we do too and assume we do as well. But the reality is we don't. We usually default to heuristics. So in this episode, Rory's going to bring us on a journey and he's going to show us that our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we'd like to think it is. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Can you tell the story, Rory? I think it's incredibly illustrative of all of this, of the British Telecom story and the mail-outs. Oh, yeah. That was kind of a decisive moment where I thought, okay, what economists believe, and what I always sort of subconsciously believe, because it's really worth knowing, by the way, that the great phrase of a friend of mine who was a journalist for many years and then went into Ogilvy PR, but he said, just because something makes sense doesn't mean it's true. By the way, the people who are interesting generally in decision science, the people I really admire, actually aren't scientists, okay? Because I think the scientific method is constraining. It says you Define knowledge as what you know to a high degree of confidence, and you proceed from there. But it doesn't any ask any questions about how do you discover more about what you don't know. And the people I think we should venerate in terms of decision-making and inquiry, three classes of people I notice at the best are very impressive, military people, medics, and cops. Now, let me explain this. Why I think cops are better scientists than scientists are, Okay. Because if you're a cop, there are actually two processes to getting a bad guy put into jail, okay? There's the investigative phase, which is find out who did it, who done it. And then there's the actual legislative phase, which is produce enough evidence so that your argument is incontestable and you can bang them up. And the second phase, you might argue, is scientific in the conventional sense. It looks at significance of evidence and reliability of evidence. But the investigative phase is actually much, much fluffier. And it will often take advantage of information which is seemingly tangential, anecdotal, or almost irrelevant. And the story I always tell about this is when they caught the Yorkshire Ripper back in the, I think, early 80s, a serial killer in Yorkshire who mostly, but not exclusively, murdered prostitutes in kind of Leeds and Bradford. And one of the reasons the cops got suspicious and went and searched where the guy had gone to have a pee and found that he'd deposited a hammer and a screwdriver and a load of weapons, was the cop, who was just a standard beat cop, it wasn't a detective who caught him, said, do you notice anything weird about the way he was parked? Because when he was arrested, he'd actually picked up a girl. And the cop said, he's parked the wrong way around, right? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) very simple. The other cop, who's a bit more naive, said, I don't get what you're talking about. He said, well... Normally, if people want to have sex in the back of a car, they park with the windscreen into the wall, as it were, so no one can see what they're doing on the back seat. 
okay? But he parked facing out. Now, if you're planning to conduct sexual activity, maybe park one way around. If you're planning to kill someone and make a quick getaway, you'd possibly park facing out. It was just an unusual behaviour. Now, just to be clear, that has no evidential value. You can't bang someone up for life for parking in a funny way, okay? Right, in the Bradford Red Light District. That doesn't have evidential value, but it does have significance. And the significance is, this is worth exploring more. This is where I should direct more of my attention versus places which don't have any anomalous or unusual characteristics. And, you know, cops will make use of multiple parallel forms of inquiry, door-to-door inquiry, forensics, DNA, asking the word on the street, going to their usual grasses and asking if they've heard anything. You use all these parallel moans, some of which have evidential value and some of which merely tell you where to direct the inquiry next. Well, I think science has become... This p-values thing is, in the social sciences, don't get me wrong, okay, it's bollocks, right? I mean, it doesn't tell you the significance of something. It tells you the confidence with which you can generalise. But, I mean, the p-value is optimising for the average as well. If you look at medicine, okay, you're not distinguishing between something that's a little bit beneficial to everybody and something that's hugely beneficial to some people and irrelevant or, indeed, detrimental to others. It's all about averaging and aggregation. It's fine if they're universal laws like physics and engineering to some extent, okay? The way I describe the difference between engineering and behavioural science is that if you're building a bridge and you want the bridge to stand up, that's engineering. Once you paint the lines on the bridge for how the traffic goes or you put the traffic lights in, that's complexity science and psychology. Because in the first case, you're dealing with things that cannot change, Thing, as Aristotle said, there's a great guy you should get on as well, Roger L. Martin, who's a fantastic business writer, who's written a book I recommend to all your listeners called When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. He's a former dean of the Rotman School in Toronto, the business school in Toronto, brilliant business writer and thinker, instinctively a complexity thinker. If you're a business guy and you want to get into this second order complex stuff, I'd really recommend his, he's written quite a few books. And so Aristotle, I think, according to Roger L. Martin, and I, having read classics, I should know this, but he said, the scientific method works extremely well when things cannot be other than they are. In other words, you're dealing with unchanging laws like gravitation or the properties of materials, okay? When you're dealing with a world where things can be other than they are, you need a different methodology, And when you're dealing with things which are totally unfamiliar, whether it's a crime or a novel coronavirus, you can't rely solely on the scientific method because the clue's in the word novel, right? So I started advertising a field called direct marketing, which back in 1988 basically meant direct mail and the telephone because there weren't any other addressable media. It also meant doing ads in the newspaper, which had a coupon response. And that meant you could measure. Now, important caveat It did not mean you could measure perfectly because there were situations where you could, which is when the product was not available in the shops. You were selling a clock radio, which was only available through mail order because the mail order company who were then placing an ad for the clock radio had secured basically exclusive import rights. Now, in that case, it was sort of perfectly measurable, although you could go a bit further and say, well, there's also a brand. You know, if you serve the person reliably, they're more likely to buy from you in the future. Because you had either coupons, which were coded when you clipped out the coupon, or you phoned the number on the ad. If you phoned the number, they'd say, can you tell us the code? 
and you'd say they'd say phone 0800 quoting code gb73 now the reason you quoted gb73 was so they could actually track it back to the individual insertion in the newspaper in which the ad appeared in direct mail the coupon would have a code on it and likewise the phone number would have a code so you could measure and you could therefore test different creative approaches, different sizes, etc. And given the high numbers involved compared to social science and behavioural economics experiments, which generally involve 15 grad students, given you're talking to 50,000, or in the case of press ads, maybe a million readers, okay, the numbers were large enough to have a high degree of confidence and significance. And so we have this case, which really fascinated me. This was my kind of gateway drug to behavioural economics, if you like where we are writing to customers of British Telecom, which is you know the British Telstra for Australian listeners, and we were selling them on what were called Star Services, which was subscription services for a few pounds a month, which let you use the star and pound or hash button on your phone to do a few clever whizzy things, like diverting your calls, call waiting, which is where you get the beep in your ear when there's someone trying to get through. So we wrote to people and said, would you like this for £2.50 a month? If you would, tick the box at the bottom of this letter, chop off the bottom of the letter, put it in the prepaid envelope and send it back to us because we pre-lasered all their details on the bottom of the letter as well as the top. So we could immediately then, without them having to do anything other than tick a box, they could simply put this in the post and they'd, they'd have the service added to their line. Or ring 0800 blah, 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 and quote this code, okay? And we had a client who was slightly bonkers and he literally... He said, well, we're the phone company. Why the hell are we giving all this money to the Royal Mail by allowing people to respond by post? We should be forcing people to respond by phone. I have no idea to this day why this person had this strong-held opinion, OK? But they did. And by the way, this is a classic efficiency-effectiveness trade-off because one of the things that tends to happen in business if you're pursuing efficiency is you look at the most efficient means of transaction, which tends to be online self-service, and you try and impose it on all your customers. And that is indeed efficient. It's not necessarily effective because a lot of your customers, a lot of the time, don't want to use the lowest cost form of transaction, or they can't. They're elderly. They're not online. They can't buy your product online or whatever it is, or they're impatient, or they're on the move, or whatever it may be. Okay, anyway. But this slightly mad client said, I don't want to offer this postal response anymore. I want everybody to respond by phone. On the confident assumption that people who wanted the product wouldn't be bothered by the mode of response, whether you respond by phone or whether you respond by post. And we as good direct marketers said, well, we're happy to test that, but we're not happy to do it off the bat. So let's do a test where we take 50,000 randomly selected customers, representative sample of 50,000 people, and three groups of 50,000 people. One lot we send a letter which is phone only. One lot we send a letter which is post only. And the third lot will allow the choice. Now, previously, the response rates had been about 7%, I think, of people who wanted to buy this product. And it did have a cost. Okay, this wasn't just about inertia. It cost you £2.69 or something a month if you added call diversion, call waiting, and three-way calling. That was the third product. I've forgotten it. And the response rates were typically about 7%. When we did the test, the people who were given the phone-only response option responded at 2%. The people who were offered the post-only response option responded at about 5%. It was about 49 And then if you offered people the choice, you got 7 
that is seriously weird. And I still can't fully explain it to this day. Now, there may be just an effect, by the way, psychologically in giving people a choice, because when they're thinking, do I respond by phone or do I respond by post, they're no longer thinking, do I want this product at all? So there may be a weird kind of placebo choice, which basically by saying, you always wanted to buy a BMW 5 Series. Now, do you want it in blue or do you want it in red? At which point you're no longer thinking about whether you really need a 5 Series Beamer. There may be a psychological factor to this. But when you think about it, that's fascinating because it, it suggests that the means by which you can reply is more decisive in terms of whether people order your product. And a few people in the agency realised that this was actually a monumental discovery which should have gone down in the annals of economics. Now, don't get me wrong, economists understand there are things called transaction costs. They're not totally blind to the fact that actually, you know, some modes of interaction are less costly or painful or troublesome than others, and they'd accept the fact that psychologically some people hate the phone and some people don't like going to the post and so on. But I wish I had the data still. But, I mean, thinking back, we didn't know there was such a thing called behavioural economics. When we found that, we should have phoned up Daniel Kahneman and Richard Thaler, like, day one, and said, what does this tell us? Maybe we should have been... (laughs) I think we're trying to win a direct marketing award. We should have been trying to win a Nobel Prize, really. This was not, by the way, a standalone thing. It was not uncommon in those behavioural economics tests performed by the direct marketing industry for you to discover things which ran completely counter to the normal assumptions of economics, not least, actually, it was surprisingly common where actually putting the price up would increase demand, for example. Tell the sparkling wine story. I love the sparkling wine story about the guy in the south of England. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Mr. So the guy who took over Chapel Down, there was always British and English sparkling wine. Now, what you may not know is that the soil in the southeast of England, and I think maybe parts of Wales as well, but particularly the southeast of England, is very, very similar. In fact, it's the same sort of substratum as you find in Champagne country in France, in Epernay. By the way, Champagne was invented in the UK anyway. Long before there was Dom Perignon, there was a guy called Christopher Merritt who presented to the Royal Society on fermentation in bottle. And the advance that made champagne possible was not as the French think, you know, the idea of viticulture. It came from superior glassmaking technology that Geordie glassmakers in Newcastle in the northeast perfected bottles that you could produce in quantity, which were high enough in quality that they would actually survive in bottle fermentation. So the total myth of the French that Dom Perignon invented champagne and declared, come quickly, I am tasting the stars, is absolute French marketing bollocks. The actual discovery was someone in the northeast of England going, fucking hell, man, there's bubbles in that and all, right? The interesting thing there is, is that you can produce very, very good. Indeed, some French champagne houses have actually bought vineyards. But this guy was selling English sparkling wine. Now, the problem is, if you look at champagne, it's a Veblen good, really. It's principally bought to signal generosity, signal hospitality, or signal or mark the significance of an occasion. This is a champagne occasion. It's not a Prosecco occasion, right? If you win a Nobel Prize or something, you don't go out and say, should we have the £5 per second? Right? You get, this is a champagne moment. You mark it with champagne. It's why it's insanely lucrative, because it's a Veblen gun. And this guy, who was a former Heineken marketer, I think, bought Chapel Down. 
And he was the first person to realise that it doesn't matter how good your wine is. If people think you bought it for seven ninety nine, it's not doing the job of champagne because people think you bought it on price and it doesn't signal generosity, it doesn't signal hospitality, and it doesn't mark an occasion. So at that point, what he did was he did improve the quality. I'm not suggesting it's pure marketing, okay? But he also created a very, very distinctive brand and he ramped the price up to kind of £27 a bottle. And the whole thing took off. And there are many, many cases where people effectively use price not merely as a bad. They see price as a signal of seller confidence, for example. Price is a signal of quality. Uh, the way I would put it is to economists, price is a unidimensional number. To consumers, price is a feeling. And the example I always give of where humans are more intelligent than economists is this hypothetical where imagine you've got to choose between two products, like two, let's say, Bluetooth speakers, and they're about the same size, and one of them has more functionality than the other. Just does more things, or it's got a, a stand or some other benefit, okay? And the one that has more functionality also costs less than the other. Now, to an economist, that's the easiest question in the world, okay? High functionality, lower price, slam dunk, no-brainer, nothing to see here, buy the cheaper, better one, and move on. In reality, it doesn't work like that. If you've got a product with more functionality, you have to charge more for it, because otherwise it doesn't make sense to the consumer. So they go, hold on. If I had a better product, I'd charge more for it than the inferior product. So the fact that you're charging less for it is now confusing me. And in fact, I'm not going to buy either of them. So quite often, you get companies which go through huge efficiency struggles to reduce the price of their product to make it less saleable. So it's like a double loss. You're making less money and you're selling less. Now, in economics, with the price-demand curve only sloping one way, that's notionally impossible. So any activity devoted to efficiency and cost reduction has to reward you in some way. In reality, it can be the dumbest thing you can even do. Going on from there, in your book, you say, you've got this great line, for a business to be truly customer-focused, it needs to ignore what people say. Instead, it needs to concentrate on what people feel. And I think that's just brilliant. Okay, so this is getting away from complexity into kind of brain and science. It's getting into psychophysics. It's getting into phenomenology. It's getting into epistemology, all of which, by the way, are complex fields, because the way we perceive things is non-linear. There's even an argument psychologically that instinctively we kind of perceive quantity logarithmically, not linearly. And so if you get tribes of prenumerate people and you say, here's a grain of rice, here are nine grains of rice, make me a pile of rice that's halfway in between the two, the numerate people will tend to put five grains down. So it goes one, five, nine, four every time. The non-numerate people will tend to put down three, which is effectively logarithmic. And you might argue we perceive price logarithmically, which may explain why... Richard Thaler's experiment, which is that would you cross town to buy a clock radio for $19 rather than $25? Yes. Would you cross town to buy a television for $2,000 rather than $2,006? No. Right? And his argument is, well, each time you've got the same amount of effort and you're saving $6. So how come you'll do it for the clock radio, but you won't do it for the television? 
Now, technically, in conventional economics, that is irrational. Nassim Taleb argues that you buy clock radios a lot, but you don't buy televisions very often. So it's more important to be microsensitive to price fluctuations on groceries than it is when buying houses, right? If you buy a house, you're not that bothered about £100 out of the way because you only do it three times in your life, whereas you buy your groceries very, very frequently. But equally, I might argue that it also reflects the fact that we tend to perceive quantity in a non-linear way. And presumably the percentage of the saving is more important than the value of the saving. And sometimes, by the way, it's just the fact that it's a saving. I always wanted to do a completely illegal marketing experiment, which was putting 50% extra free, right, on a box of washing powder, and then putting the price up 50%. Because I wanted to see what part of the appeal was created by the actual reduction in price per unit volume of the washing powder, and what percentage of the uplift in sales was just ooh, look, there's a deal, I don't want to miss out on a deal without performing any further calculations. And the reason I got interested in this is that Marks and Spencer in the UK, they have a deli section, there's a long-running offer, which is, is basically a continual offer, which is buy three for eight pounds. It used to be buy three for seven pounds, but that's the cost of living crisis for you. And I noticed that when I went to this section of Marks and Spencer's, I always bought three things, the Taramas Lata, say, yeah, the hummus, the vine leaves, you know, the uh, artichokes. I'd always buy three of these bloody things in a pot because otherwise I'd be missing out. But I never actually did the maths to work out how much more than eight pounds these things would have cost. I never did the maths. And it struck me that a large part of sales promotion isn't what economists would say, which is, oh, it's price, you know, it's the price demand curve. It's simply FOMO. It's I don't want to miss out on a deal. Broadly speaking, when there's a deal and it's you're kind of thinking of doing it anyway, don't miss out. Now, obviously, I can't, the M&S is indicative. Marks and Spencer is indicative, I think. And I ask loads of other people, how, much, how often do you add up the three things? Because they're like £2.73, £3.15, £4, OK? Some people might maximise the deal by buying the most expensive thing you can buy from the items on offer. But fundamentally, people weren't adding it up. And I met someone, I said, I can't do this experiment because it's illegal and unethical, but I'd love to know the answer. And the guy who will remain nameless, working for a company which will remain nameless, so I know the answer to that question. I said, how the hell do you know that? And he said, because we're an enormous multinational company and a few times a year we do it by mistake. We put 50% extra free on the packaging and we forget to re-key something and actually the price goes up by 50%. I said, oh, can you give me your data? There might be a Nobel Prize in this. Okay. And he said, for obvious reasons, I cannot give you the data. I said, can you give me a hint? He said, let me just put it like this. He said, you won't believe how much money we make, <laughs> basically. Okay. So there are a lot of people who buy, you know, when is this 50% extra fee? They're not actually going, does this chocolate satisfy my utility function? at this new revised price. There's no oh, fucking deal here when there's a deal. Now, by the way, there's a kind of evolutionary thing which interests me, and I don't know whether it's rational or not, which is it's a mixture of FOMO and I won't get the chance to do this again. So it's a mixture of kind of FOMO and scarcity value. And so the fact that you're tempted by something which is a one-off. Now, I defended the Brexit vote on a basis that nobody else used. I've literally never seen this argument used anywhere else. If you are just suspicious that people at the top will sign us up further and further and further into ever closer union and ever greater centralization of power in a kind of mega state, 
because they just find those things really attractive and because economists are obsessed with economies of scale, when there are also diseconomies of scale, by the way, particularly in the shape of bureaucracy and in the case of loss of feedback. When things become bigger, the feedback gets broken. So I voted Remain, by the way. But what really annoyed me is people going, these people voting leave are completely irrational. But I said, there's a very, very good rational reason, which is maybe they didn't want to leave the European Union in 2016, but they realised that 2016 was the only chance in their entire lives they would have to express their disquiet because most political parties, the majority of people in most political parties, with the exception of kind of people on the far left and some people on the far right and a few weird people in the middle, are basically in favour of what you might call greater centralisation and coordination. And so, you know, I sympathise for people who go, well, I'll never get this chance again. I think understanding the fact that our brain evolved and runs on heuristics, which are often what you might call meta-rational, they make sense in a world of limited information, imperfect trust, all the things that economists assume, perfect information, perfect trust, and a utility function that allows you to calculate the benefit you get for every cent you get to 27 decimal places. In a world where those economic axioms do not apply, then a lot of things that we do perfectly sensibly will appear to be irrational to economists. Well, OK, Let's imagine you've got eight friends, OK, and you're booked on a holiday and you really like your friends. But unlike you, your friends are really keen on polka and Bavarian umpa music. And they're booking the holiday collectively. It's going to be a majority vote about where you go on holiday. And you're starting to get the inkling that they might book you on a Bavarian thigh slapping polka and umpa band holiday with lots of schnitzel. OK, they haven't actually said so. Right. But you really don't like polka and you don't like umpa music, OK? But all of your friends, apart from you and maybe two others, really are quite into it. And so you know you're going to submit yourself to majority rule over where you go on holiday. And in 2016, the choice comes, do I pay my deposit or don't I? The reason you then back out is not because you're necessarily going to go down a Bavarian umpa route. It's because once you pay the fucking deposit, it's too goddamn late and you're stuck with whatever it is they agree to do. And you might find yourself sitting in Lederhosen, uh, you know, in August. Okay, This, by the way, happened. It's one of the funniest stories. There's a German court case about some people who go to their local travel agent and they say can you find us a last-minute cruise? And the travel agent says, great news, because this cabin for two, it's the last one, it's just become available on this cruise ship, leaving, like, Bremerhaven, or, OK, right? And they go, brilliant! And it's quite cheap, because it's the last two and it's last minute. It turned out that every other cabin on the ship had been booked by, like, the Friends of Bavarian Umpar music. And their suspicions were first aroused when they appeared to be the first, the only people boarding the ship who weren't carrying like a euphonium. Okay. And they then spent seven days on a <laughs> with basically 24 hour umpar. There was like this stuff going on until two o'clock in the morning. Okay. <laughs> okay. As we might say in Brexit terms, they hadn't signed up for this. Okay. And it was a brilliant court case. The travel agent argued that it was perfectly reasonable they'd asked for a cabin on a cruise ship and what were they complaining about? Okay. One of the genuinely hysterical German court cases. You can find it somewhere. 
But I always see that as a parallel. You know, if you suspect this cruise might be absolutely dominated by polka enthusiasts, okay, and it comes to the time when this is the only chance to get out scot-free, there are other reasons as well. I mean, things like psychological things, which good complexity theorists should all know, are like the Abilene effect, where groups of people can end up doing things that none of them individually wants to do for fear of kind of upsetting the other person. It's sometimes called the Abilene Paradox. There's an old page about it on Wikipedia. A-B-I-L-E-N-E. It's named after the place in Texas. But there's also a big risk in, in supranational organisations like that that effectively a form of collective insanity arises where nobody actually wants to do something, but everybody's frightened to dissent for fear of rocking the boat. So you do get a cases where sometimes collective decision-making is vastly better than individual decision-making because it error-corrects, but actually collective decision-making is also prone to all kinds of insanity. One really important thing is optimization, unless you have all the data, and I mean all the data, optimization is the wrong way to go. So what's the right way to go? You should be looking for satisficing, decatastrophization, resilience. You should not attempt to optimize unless you have all the data that matters from which to optimize. Because if you optimize for part of the data, what you tend to do is you achieve your optimality and your subset of the data by basically being terribly bad at something else, which I think we learned with supply chains during COVID, didn't we? You should optimize for resilience and you should optimize for complementarity and you should optimize for low variance before you start optimizing for what you might call a narrow optimal point in a selective and unrepresentative subset of the data. That's what consumers do, by the way. Consumers satisfy. Consumers basically get... McDonald's is the most successful restaurant in the world, not because it's really, really good, but because it's incredibly good at not being bad. It's a different thing. Explain what satisfying is. This is uh, Herbert Simon, isn't it? Herbert Simon, the polymath and general all-round good guy, I think. But effectively, it's a kind of portmanteau word which comes from satisfy and suffice. And now, obviously... When we get married to people, we're to some extent satisficing because you're not, you know, it's impossible to optimize. But we never talk about, you know, I fell in love with so and so because of her, you know, she was comparatively non mad. <laughs> okay, right? Okay. But when we choose McDonald's over the restaurant de poche, what we're choosing is a low variance outcome. I know what I'm going to get, and I know it won't be bad. I'll get a certain number of calories for a reasonable price, and I won't get the shits, I won't get botulism, okay? There are a lot of non-negatives to going to McDonald's, which we don't talk about. And the example I gave in my book, Alchemy, is that when I am catching a plane from Gatwick Airport, my sat-nav tells me to go on the motorway, because at the time, given the information available, it's the fastest route. On average, it's the fastest route, but there's one important caveat. If I go on the slower route, the journey time is higher, but it's lower variance, which means I'm less likely to miss the plane. Now, it matters a bit to me whether I get an hour to bum around in the lounge beforehand or whether I get an hour and 20 minutes. I prefer to have an hour and 20 minutes, okay? But the thing I really can't afford is to have minus 10 hours of waiting time. And on the motorway, because there's no optionality, there's no escape lane between here and Junction 6, to use American parlance, a semi-jackknife's on that motorway. I'm going to miss the plane. There's no escape. It only happens 5% of the, well, 2% of the time, maybe. But when it happens, I'm going to miss my plane. If I go on the back roads, I may only get there with 30 minutes to spare rather than an hour. But I'm not going to miss the plane because there are back routes, there are lanes I can take. It's slower on average, but it's less frequently very, very slow. 
And I would argue that humans, quite rightly, evolution has calibrated us to care about variance, not just to care about average outcome. In other words, a lot of the time we pay a premium for brands because they're lower variance. This is one of the most profound sentences spoken in the advertising industry, and I know who spoke it and to whom because it was spoken in the 1970s, I think, by a guy called, sadly now dead, who's a brilliant, brilliant man called Joel Raffleson, who is the creative director of Ogilvy's Chicago office. And he said to David Ogilvy sometime in the 1970s, David Ogilvy being the founder of Ogilvy, the advertising agency, uh, he told me this. I said to David, and he agreed with me, often I think people don't pay a premium for brands because they think they're better. I think they pay a premium for brands because they're more certain that they're good. And that's not a bad definition of satisficing, by the way, which is reasonably high quality and low variance may be better under multiplicative dynamics in a non-ergodic world, okay? Reasonably good and definitely not terrible is the rational decision compared with brilliant with a small chance of being disastrous. Because if it's a decision we're going to take repeatedly, or if the catastrophic downside leads to leaving the gene pool, avoiding disaster is more important in evolutionary terms than attaining perfection. There may be cases where we try to attain perfection where we show off, like dating, for example, that's different. That's a different competitive advantage because you've got to be the one person up against nine competitors. And in that case, you may want to actually optimise. But in most real-world decisions concerning survival rather than reproduction, you probably want to satisfy. What does that mean, right, to if we come to think about complex systems that we want to change or drive behaviour in or make better or improve, if... Humans are satisfying rather than optimizing. What are the key ways we have to think about those systems? Well, first of all, what we've got to say is stop calling this irrational. It's completely wrong to call it irrational and it's completely wrong to call it a bias because Herbert Simon's great shtick was decision-making under uncertainty. And you might argue it also extends to decision-making under imperfect information. And in those cases, as the great Gerd Gigerenzer has shown, in many cases, a heuristic helps you satisfy better than a calculation. A heuristic from some telling reliable information may be a better mode of disaster avoidance and satisficing than a calculation based on all available information. And yet we tend to have an assumption when we do things like data analysis and regression analysis and all this sort of stuff, that the more data you use, the better it's going to be. In mail order, for example, the simple heuristic of mail the people who most recently interacted with us was more reliable than a really complicated data bloody regression analysis, which looked at sort of 15 different factors. And so quite often the heuristics we use, once you understand that we're trying to satisfy rather than to optimize, are actually evolutionary genius rather than human innate stupidity. Rory, perfect way to finish. Thank you very, very much for being on the show. Really enjoyed it. It's a pleasure, anytime. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Waveland Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. Bye.